Hello and welcome to this episode of Superhero Ethics. Today, returning guest Jessica Plummer joins me to discuss Wonder Woman 1984. All that more after a commercial break we have no control over, but hopefully by now is no longer Christmas ads. Hello and welcome back. I'm Matthew. As I said, I'm joined again by Jessica. Jessica has been a regular guest talking to me about the history of comic books and a number of different movies and and TV shows, especially in the DC-verse. And so, Jessica, I am so excited to have you back for Wonder Woman 84. The minute I saw this movie was coming out, uh, I knew you were the one I wanted to get on. So how are we doing today? I'm doing good. I am wearing a a Wonder Woman shirt, and I am ready Uh to discuss. Awesome, awesome. So let's give just some background. Um, I know you're very deep into DC comics. I mean, you're you're with comics in general, but especially DC. Uh, I don't think you and I got to talk about the first Wonder Woman movie. And so I'd love to hear just a bit about kind of your feelings about the character in general and about the first Wonder Woman movie and how she's been betrayed in other movies like Justice League and BVS and kind of sort of what you're feeling about this character going into uh, WW84. Sure. Um, yeah, I, I, to be honest, I'm not like a super hardcore Wonder Woman fan in general. I do like her. Um, mm-hmm. Like I, I enjoy her. I have dipped in and out of her comics basically since I started reading comics but never like super religiously picking them up um but I I am fond of the character I'm certainly not you know a deep in the weeds expert um Mm -hmm. which I probably should have warned you about before I agreed (laughs) to do this but you've got me the fraud um uh, if expertise was a fundamental part of this uh, <laughs> podcast, we would have stopped a number of episodes ago. <laughs> it's about fans with opinions and, and some insight. I do have opinions. I have so many opinions. <laughs> um, but yeah, I do. I do uh, really enjoy Wonder Woman. And uh, she's one of those characters who, like, I feel very strongly about what she means as the most prominent female superhero in existence and mm-hmm. the most prominent uh, female DC character and um, you know, that, that she should be treated on the same level with Batman and Superman and very frequently is not. Um, right. As far as the first movie went, um, so I did not see, uh, <laughs> didn't see Batman v Superman um, where she first appeared until like years after it had come out. Um, so I didn't, like see her first clip in there, but everybody was like, oh, she was the only good thing about the movie. Um, so I was cautiously optimistic about the first Wonder Woman movie. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's tough to be optimistic about DC movies because... <laughs> There's been some problems, for sure. By and large, they have not been great. And as, as you know, and as I have said on this podcast before, I also don't really like the Nolan movies. So there has mm-hmm. not been a dc movie that i think it's basically wonder woman and birds prey (laughs) (laughs) i really i mean there are parts of like the old superman movies that i like but overall i yeah um it's basically wonder woman and birds of prey so i was absolutely thrilled with that movie when it came out i really really love it i know it's not perfect but it's also one of Mm -hmm. those things where like the minute it came out everybody needed to dissect the ways in which it wasn't perfect in a way that they don't for like the, you know, the deeply flawed plot structure of say 
Captain America Winter Soldier or yeah. The Dark Knight, which everybody uh-huh. loves, but they, they got some problems. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, again, I'm wearing a Wonder Woman shirt that literally says the line from the movie, what I do is not up to you. Mm. I super, super enjoyed that movie. Um, and then upon watching Batman v Superman and Justice League, she was indeed the only good thing about those movies. Well, no, I like yeah. the other <laughs> the other little kids in uh, Justice League. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so I had I, high hopes I love going Fla- into I love this. the Flash, but yeah, yeah. I, I definitely agree with the overall all point you're making. Yeah. And Cyborg, Ray Fisher mm-hmm. did a fantastic job with the quarter of his face he was allowed to use. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I, I think I had a similar similar perspective. Um, Wonder Woman was a character who I loved the Linda Carter show growing up. That was kind of right in my wheelhouse when I was a kid and also, you know, 10-year-old boy, pretty woman kicking butt. Mm-hmm. This is all the things I'm supposed to be enjoying. Um, and I really love the development of the character in the Justice League, uh, TV shows especially. Yeah. Um, uh, I really loved, you know, I think that show especially really gave the idea of, you know, the, the triad, the triumvirate of her, Batman, and Superman. And that she's not just like the the pretty girl who hangs out with them, that she has a very important role as kind of this fulcrum balance point between Superman and Batman having very different perspectives on things. And uh, like, so I, I went in loving the character for all those reasons, as well as being fascinated with her history. Um, Professor Marston and the Wonder Women is one of my favorite movies. Um, and I, I really liked that first mo- the first movie. And I think, I think you said it well in terms of the way it was looked at. To me, it was a fantastic popcorn movie, you know, in a, there are movies that I love to really like dive into every single ounce and element of them. That first Wonder Woman movie didn't feel like a movie that was asking you to do that. It was saying, look, we're going to give you a great story, a lot of fun action, a lot of great costumes and sets, and a really fun way to spend a couple of hours eating popcorn and seeing amazing heroes and do it in ways that challenge all the kind of gender assumptions you generally have about these things. And I thought that was great, and and you're right. To me, kind of a you and I are a little different because I'm a huge fan of the Christopher Nolan movies, but I definitely have not been enjoying the Zack Snyder take on the DC up to this point. I have seen the director's cut of uh, the Snyder version of Batman vs Superman, and I do think it is much better. Uh, still has some big problems, and just isn't the portrayal of Batman or Superman that I agree with. But I, it feels like a better movie to me in a lot of ways, but just not what I'm looking for. But Wonder Woman was definitely, for me as well, I think that the one kind of real shining thing to come out of the DCEU. Um, since then, I've, I've enjoyed some other things a lot more. You, uh, Birds of Prey is my favorite, like you. Uh, I thought Shazam was actually quite good. But I was definitely looking forward to to this as kind of like one more, okay, let, let's go back to the, the, the part of the DCU that so far I've, I've most enjoyed, at least one of the, one of the parts. And I have to say, Wonder Woman 84 was kind of disappointing from that perspective. And so with all that, I'm kind of really curious to dive into what we thought of Wonder Woman 84. And I do want to be clear, we're not just going to do kind of a movie review. Uh, there have already been two great podcasts here on the Stranded Panda Podcast Network that have done that, both with Bingers Assemble and with DCEU. We're going to look at it more from a, um, an ethical perspective and look at the questions the movie raised and what they both asked and maybe what they they didn't realize they were asking in some 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 complaint ways we may well have, as well as maybe some good things we saw, to be sure. But we're also going to, um, yeah, we're two movie fans who love to talk and love to talk about movies, so we'll also probably have some more kind of review type stuff. 
But so with all that, let's let's shift into this movie itself. Well, um, I do I do want to just challenge something you said um, about sure, the first one real quick, um, and mm-hmm. I do think it's relevant to our discussion. Um, but I agree with you that it's a very fun popcorn movie, but I don't think that that's all that it is. Um, for mm-hmm. me, as a female viewer, I was really. Uh, moved and inspired by like, you know, the, the iconic scene of Diana crossing no man's land and seeing this female superhero with these, you know, powerful moments and this getting these badass scenes. I mean, it's an action movie. Yes, it is a popcorn movie, but this was the first successful female led superhero movie ever. And then we got Captain Marvel and Birds of Prey isn't really the same kind of movie. And so to mm-hmm. see that, I think that there is, uh, there is value in doing a familiar formula with, uh, as you alluded to, someone we don't normally see in that hero role. Um, it's like I've been saying for years that Marvel has sort of given up innovating and they just make the same movie over and over again. It's always Iron Man over and over again, which is fine because Iron Man's a great movie and it's a flexible formula, but it would be innovative if they just stopped putting white guys in that role and did that same movie with people who look different from Robert Downey Jr. And so while... I see what you're saying, and I didn't take that as you being dismissive of it in any way. I do think that the fact that it is this sort of ebullient action movie, but it is about a woman, um, does sort of elevate it because of how unique that is and how powerful that is. No, thank you very much, because that that's my fault for not better explaining what I meant. Because I, I think my point, what I was trying to say was, and it's the morning and I haven't recorded in a long time. So thank you. I should be more careful about this is that to me, it's incredibly powerful, as you said, to have a popcorn movie, but, but without it being starring a man with it being starring a woman and a woman hero. And, and then I think that it's, I, I mean, I think you just said it perfectly, you know, because I, I think it is, is both. It's that it's not that you should be, because it's a popcorn movie, you dismiss the fact that a woman's in it. It's that, to analyze it in that kind of frame by frame, let's look at every moment of the plot and if it all fits together perfectly like an Oscar winning movie should, not that Oscar winning movies often do, but you know what I mean, <laughs> it is an unfair and I think kind of misogynistic attack on the movie. I, I guess that's all I meant, but I think you're absolutely right, and I think you said better than I ever could, why it was so important to have that kind of a thing. You know, And I, I think in the same way, like with Marvel, you're right, it often is that kind of formula, and then to do something like Black Panther and to stick that have that same kind of formula, but where it's a black-led movie and an entirely black world that's happening in and stuff like that becomes so important. Um, so yeah, thank thank you very much for making that. I think that was what I was going at, but you're right. I didn't didn't get that point o- across at all. Um, so so with that then, how is your kind of overall take on this on this on this particular part of uh, Diana Prince's journey? Um, I definitely agree with you that it was a bit disappointing. I watched it on the 27th, um, so by then. I had heard, you know, a few friends had watched it. I'd heard a few people going like, well, that was all right. Um, So I didn't have super high expectations. And I I watched it at my brother's house and he was like, we were talking about this beforehand. He's also a really big DC fan. And he was like, look, my expectations for the first Wonder Woman were really, really low. And it was great. So just lower your expectations really hard. (laughs) Um, That's fair. But... uh, 
and which his, they were low because of the you know track record of DC, not because he didn't expect there to be a good Wonder Woman movie. Um, right. But yeah, I thought honestly, like I had fun watching it. Um, I certainly wasn't like, oh, I'm bored or oh, I'm upset by this or I, I wish I wasn't watching this movie. Like it was a perfectly enjoyable experience. Um, but I was also I spent a lot of it being like, uh, uh, the, all right, <laughs> um, hmm, okay. It's just it's a bit of a mess, um, and it's yeah. a bit. Um, I mean, we could talk about this this more. Uh, like the. I'd love to talk about this more, but I feel like the, the central uh, plot line, the central hook of the plot felt very um, uh, small scale in a lot of ways mm-hmm. and very sort of B-movie. Um, but we we can talk about that at greater length. Yeah. No, I, I, think, I think that's about where I was. I think I was... I feel like there's kind of three different levels in which I want to talk about this movie. One is about the characters themselves and some of the decisions they make. Um, many, many of which I found pretty questionable in terms of the way that the movie set things up. Um, and in the second, and I think I definitely, a lot of those kind of like, they pulled me out of it in some ways. Cause I, I agree. Like there's a, there's some gorgeous cinematography. I thought the whole sort of, um, Olympiad type competition at the beginning of the movie was fantastically shot and beautifully done. Um, if going a long way to kind of set up one particular point, mm-hmm. um, but the character decisions, we talk a lot on this podcast about the importance of a good villain. And I'm a huge Pedro Pascal fan. I can't say that this version of Max Lord is really one. Uh, there was a lot of mustache twirling to come out of this particular <laughs> villain in ways that were really kind of not what I'm normally looking for. And then also just the way this movie fits into the overall DCEU was one I'm, I'm really wrestling with. Um, so I think we're gonna have a lot to, to talk about. Let's maybe just start by doing kind of character by character breakdowns. Um, so let's start with, uh, Diana herself. Uh, how, how did you feel about how she was portrayed in this particular movie? Um, I, mostly good. I, I think Gal Gadot is wonderful in the role. Um, I, <laughs> I was a little bit, I mean, Look, I, I I loved the relationship between Diana and Steve Trevor in the first movie. It was beautiful and it was poignant, and I I really enjoyed them in the comics as well. And I think that they they were poignant again in this one. But Diana is immortal, <laughs> and like the idea that seventy years have gone by and she. I mean, again, like you said, it, it, it raises questions about the, the whole DCEU, but it also, if we, you know, it's one thing to set up, okay, here's this character who fought in World War One, and then she had her heart broken and she sort of retreated to, to lick her wounds until she was needed once again, um, you know, a hundred years later. And that's fine if you set it up that way because it doesn't require you to think too much about what happens in between. But when right. you do think about it, it's like, well, she's immortal. He was always going to die well before her. She's mm-hmm. 70 years have gone by. She hasn't moved on at all. She hasn't processed anything. And she also, 
again, this sort of goes into like the issues that it raises with the whole DCEU, but like, why did she take out the costume again yeah. for a mall robbery? <laughs> like that doesn't seem so I'm sorry, World War Two and honestly any number of genocides and wars and global crises that have happened between 1917 or 18 whenever uh the first movie ended and 1984 none of those didn't feel like lifting a finger for any of those but these guys stick up a jewelry store at some completely random mall and all of a sudden wonder woman is back and there's no insight into why she did that like it just felt I wanted again like in a lot of ways even though the scale of the movie by the end is global it felt low stakes yeah for a lot of it I think that's a great way to put it I'm really glad you specifically brought up World War II because you know I I liked the concept of the first movie I liked the idea you know and Ares is very clear that he doesn't cause war but that he sort of whispers in the ears of humanity and causes humanity to go to their worst excesses. Um, I thought the approach of sort of Germans evil, everyone else good and happy to World War One historiography was a little questionable, but <laughs> fair enough. Popcorn movie. But it did leave me wondering, okay, if Ares pushes humanity towards its worst aspects of war, how is it that 19 years after Ares is destroyed, we have World War Two? And like, I was like, that... That's an interesting historical question. Um, and and overall, kind of, I wanted to get, I think the way you put it is really good of once you start asking the question of what's Diana been doing this whole time, you have to wonder, okay, well, what has she, you know, how, how do we get from where she is at the end of Wonder Woman, the first Wonder Woman, to her and Batman versus Superman where she's very like, don't want to help unless I absolutely have to. And that doomsday is what makes her decide to do that. And I feel like this movie didn't, it didn't address those questions in either historical direction because like you said, yeah, she starts out in a, well, yeah, I'm, I'm helping out in malls and you know, uh, someone's getting attacked. I'm there to help. And, and at the end of the movie, it still certainly again, feels like she's in a, I want to help place. Um, I guess we're diving right into the DC stuff, but it didn't. I didn't feel like it grew her character in any way, or helped to make me better understand what happens between World War One and now the two thousand teens. Yeah, no, it definitely. She didn't grow at all in this movie. And to be, you know, I guess to be fair, that's sort of how superhero media is. Like you have the origin story, and then they just keep doing the thing that they do forever. Like right. that, I see a lot of frustration with. Um, uh, for example, uh, Daredevil uh, with the TV show because Matt kept making the same mistakes over and over again. And why isn't he just better? Well, because he can't be because he's a mess because that's who Daredevil is. <laughs> yeah. And so, like, why doesn't Batman ever, like, process his grief? Because he won't <laughs> because that's who Batman is. Um, and so they are always, um, you know, I've heard people say, like, superheroes are perpetually stuck in Act 2. Um, right. They never they never grow and they never end, um, which is fine for comics um, because they're shorter, smaller stories and they're serialized, but it feels weird to watch 
a whole movie and be like, well, that just reiterated exactly the points of the first one, mm-hmm. but with breakdancing. Yeah. I do think there have been some movies that have been able to do that. Like, I think, honestly, to me, Iron Man is my favorite character in the MCU because I feel like he does really go on a journey on a number of those movies in terms of yeah. starting where he is and then having a, a PTSD-like experience and then slowly healing from that and then going in all these different directions. But you're right. That's that's the exception, not the rule. And with Diana especially, because we know that she, at the start of the, the BVS movie, is in such a different place, I really wanted to see more of where she goes and how she gets there. Um and I think the point you make about her being hung up on Steve all this time is, is also really good in, in terms of like it, it made me it, Wonder Woman established her as such this strong, powerful character who literally changes the world around her. And like you said, inspires people to to fight and to, to save this village and to see the good in themselves in so many ways. I felt like having her basically be this recluse who's just been mourning steve for 70 years it made i thought it made her feel small in a way like does that does that make sense it does and i i see i i agree with you it it's very i don't want to downplay like i don't want to say oh well she's a strong feminist superhero who don't need no man and like Love is a hugely important part of who Wonder Woman is as a character. And I don't want to say she doesn't need a romance because that's done way too often with female characters where that's thrown out because there's an idea that it diminishes them in some way. Um, But at the same time, we're presented with with this character who she... And I mean, that's... I think the movie was trying to do something with this and I don't think it entirely succeeded. Um, but she, she has every, everything one could want. She has this incredibly interesting, uh, glamorous somehow. I feel like working at the Smithsonian probably isn't glamorous, um, but <laughs> she has a glamorous version of this really cool, interesting, prestigious job where she gets mm-hmm. to work on something that she's passionate about. She's, uh, clearly like magnetic and and she has I mean she's shown as actually quite isolated and interestingly she's shown as more isolated than Barbara um, but we know that Diana is a person who can make friends easily that people are drawn to her that she can form all of these myriad connections she becomes best friends with Barbara in like 35 seconds right? Um, and the fact that they're like, but her life is still empty because she doesn't have this one particular man, even though the first movie implied that she had had relationships with women before she met Steve. Oh, for sure. So the fact that everything comes back to this one specific guy who, again, would have been dead by now anyway if he hadn't died in the war. Yeah. Yeah, I do feel like that that is diminishing of the character in, in a way. And, um, the repeated theme of the movie or the question that the movie asks, can you have it all? Um, kind of, you know, sort of raised my antenna there because that's, that's something that I normally hear about women. Like, yeah, 
ladies, can you have it all? Can you have the career and the family and the this and the that and be beautiful? My and partner put Mary, together? my partner Mary asked, "How is it that in 2020 we're getting a move? We're getting a movie where Wonder Woman has to choose between her love and her career?" Yeah. Like, that's a trope we really should have gotten past yes. a long time ago. And the idea of like, fundamentally, she has to decide, no, she can't have it all. It's, I, I have issues with the idea, with the whole ladies, you can't have it all thing because it, it's a very capitalist framing of like, if you just work really hard, you can be perfect Right. You should probably buy these products about it. Um, yeah. So I'm not saying that she, you, the, it should have, the movie should have concluded that, yes, if you're Wonder Woman, you can have it all. Too bad you're not Wonder Woman. But it, it just felt like an, a framing that wasn't thought through very well. And no. again, because it hit the same, you know, saying goodbye to Steve, hit the same exact emotional beat as the first movie. It, I think that also made it feel smaller because it was like, oh, I've seen this, but that was like Casablanca. Like, that was real cool, and this is yeah. less of that. Yeah, I mean, the sacrifice he makes in that first movie is is really beautiful, and you really get the sense that this is her moment of, you know, she loves him so much for that because what she wants is to see – she wants to see humanity – striving to be its best and willing to make sacrifices and do what they have to do to defeat, you know, the evil that she sees quite literally coming from Ares. And the second time around, it just, it, it, it seemed to be missing something in that way. Yeah. And I, I felt honestly, and, and I agreed, I, I, I really want to hear your take because I think you have a, uh, have a very different perspective than I obviously, but, but this is something I got both for myself, but also in a lot of stuff I've read about it from women authors it just felt like this was one of a number of kind of misogynistic tropes that the movie was falling into, um, both in terms of, you know, the way the way that it handled sort of Diana and her her um, her approach to you know having to lose Steve in order to do the work that she wants to do, um, some of the stuff about how uh, Cheetah's journey and Minerva and just, just a lot of the dynamics there. It, it it really kind of struck some trope notes that I was like, this this is not what I would be expecting. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. I just felt it felt in some ways it felt like because it was set in 1984, it was a throwback. Yeah. Um, it, like is discovering your ability to walk in high heels really the source of superhero power oh that we're looking god. for today? Like, oh my god. Like, Barbara, <laughs> you can just buy leggings if you want to wear <laughs> leggings so bad. They sell them in stores. <laughs> like, come on. My sister looked at me at one point and said, she was born in 1990, so she looked at me and said, did they not have contacts in the 80s? I mean, if she doesn't <laughs> want to wear glasses, like, it's not that hard. Well, and, and there's a scene in particular between um, Barbara and Diana where, you know, Barbara's talking about how she's envious of, of Diana because, you know, Diana goes to the world and everyone looks at her. She's gorgeous. She's magnanimous. She's charming. And, um, you know... In honesty, Barbara is too. This is the Hermione Granger. Mm -hmm. We're going to call this character ugly because we mess up her hair and give her glasses idea. Uh, when it's a gorgeous actress playing a gorgeous character, to be sure. But but there's that conversation where Diana is saying, no, 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 you're just as good as me. People look at us the same way. When it, 
I, I heard the uh, one author I, I, I read about this used the, the phrase pretty girl privilege, which mm. I thought was kind of fitting of it. That it's this idea of Diana not recognizing that, no, because of and this is by no means a good thing in any way, shape or form. But that because of the the way she looks and the way she's treated, that she does she does get treated a very different way than someone like Barbara does, and it, it bothered me that Barbara didn't. It bothered me that Diana couldn't understand that and couldn't be more sympathetic to where Barbara was coming from. I could see a take where Diana just so genuinely sees the beauty in everybody, and I agree. Like the the whole. This is a completely ridiculous exercise because Kristen Wiig is beautiful and she looked beautiful the whole movie. And this is nonsense. (laughs) Um, Like, this is so silly. She had like a partial side ponytail for three minutes, which it was 1984. So everybody did. I had been born three months before this movie started. And I also was rocking that hair. But like, (laughs) but if we buy into the movie's premise that somehow by wearing glasses and not wearing leggings, Barbara is a hideous troll. <laughs> then I, I could see and I could get behind Diana so genuinely seeing the beauty in everybody and so, so truly like not even at this point with this many decades of being in man's world behind her. Um, just not seeing that because right. she really does see everybody as beautiful and unique and, and doesn't so complete is so completely removed from, um, you know, from our misogynistic beauty standards exactly. that everyone else has to grow up with. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Like I, I could, I would like that take, I think, but that's not what they did. They didn't, yeah. they just went with the very hackneyed trope of like, look at this beautiful woman. Oh no, we put glasses on her. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen <laughs> Um, and not another teen movie, but they make fun of that trope, like, remorselessly throughout the whole movie. And so, of course, they have this beautiful woman playing the main girl, um, and they put her in glasses and a ponytail and paint-splattered overalls. And the other characters are constantly like, ugh, she's wearing paint-splattered overalls and then, like, shuddering. <laughs> That's awesome. So it's very much, like... If if you're engaging in a trope that not another teen movie was feminist enough to dismantle, <laughs> and this is not a groundbreaking film in any way, I just watched it because Chris Evans is naked in it. Then, That's a good reason to watch it. Then, like, maybe you should reconsider what you're doing with the preeminent superheroine in the world. Just yeah. a thought. <laughs> I think that's what just so surprised me about that. And going further into also DC stuff, we kind of shift to Barbara a bit and just taking the same kind of theme with the kind of the the change of beauty and the like uh, and and shifting to Barbara some. Have you seen the Tim Burton um, Batman movies, especially number two? Mm -hmm. Uh, It felt I, I grant that both characters are cat based, but her origin story of how Minerva becomes Cheetah it felt almost like a shot-by-shot remake of the Michelle Pfeiffer Catwoman story. Yeah. Yeah. Which was, what was that? The 90s? Was it, or the 80s? Or was 80s, it 90s? yeah. Late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. And, like, 
really we're going to portray like in this day and age in the post me too era we're going to show a woman fighting back against a guy who's street harassing becoming sexual violence that that's the sign of her turning evil um that like i i get that there was a sort of like it became he's no longer a threat you're kicking the guy when he's down it's becoming vengeance and i i see where they're going with that but i thought that was such a you had a moment to show her being empowered and very quickly it became, look, she's evil, she's bad, because she's beating up this guy who was threatening to sexually assault her. Yeah. Yeah, not great. <laughs> yeah. Um, I thought what they did with the character was interesting. Um, so they kind of combined um, a couple versions of Cheetah, because mm. Cheetah's been around since the Golden Age as like a very old-school Wonder Woman villain, and the original version was named Priscilla Rich and she was a socialite who got really jealous of Wonder Woman so she developed a split personality which I mean it was the 40s so you kind of hand waved that trope and she like put on this cat suit and did crimes all right I guess um and they it was like her I think the second one was like her niece but it was basically the same idea and then um, in the post-crisis universe, so starting in 1986, was when they introduced uh, Barbara Ann Minerva, who is the character they use for this. Um, but she's an archaeologist who like, basically makes a deal with uh, this weird, like, pretty sure fictional god that gives her cheetah powers. Um, okay. <laughs> sure, yeah, it's... Um, I mean, but, you know, I watched Shazam and loved it. We're not outside the realm of possibility by any means here. It's, you know, it's 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 very silly, but that's fine with me. Um, the part that I was like, oh, I didn't know that as I was looking it up before we recorded this, I was like, oh, I don't, I don't like that at all. Was apparently like originally um, the person who like made the deal with this god was supposed to be a virgin. And she wasn't, and that's why she went crazy and evil after the spell happened. And I'm like, oh, I don't like that. Well, that's some sex positivity right there. That's no good. Um, <laughs> and in more recent, you know, because DC reboots every five minutes. Um, so in more recent takes on the character, they've really emphasized the idea that she was Diana's friend and colleague. Um, yeah. And then she basically got tricked into making this deal, and it sort of corrupted her, and that's why, like turning into a sexy, weird cat thing isn't a good thing. Um, And uh, there is a certain amount of resentment and rivalry with, um, with Diana, but it's much more, you're my friend and you didn't help me. And now we've been enemies for so long and I can't, you know, I can't put that behind me as her motivation, um, which the fact that they took the more recent version and then they were like, we're going to use this motivation from 1943 or whatever is like, uh, all right. I don't, I don't really know why you dug into the archives for that one. Um, also as of rebirth, um, Barbara. So, uh, Etta candy has a very small role in the first movie. She's Steve's mm-hmm. secretary. Um, and I did appreciate, like, they showed a, a photo of Diana and Etta 
um, who is clearly much older in Diana's apartment um, in this movie. But uh, in the comics, she is, you know, she's, well, she's not Diana's age. Diana's immortal, but she's like still around and she's young and whatever. Um, And Etta and Barbara actually have a romantic history, which I thought was an interesting addition. Um, So I know you, you also wanted to talk about um, the, uh, subtext that yeah. was going on with Barbara. Yeah. And, and I'll say I, um, this is not as much my lane. And so I'm going to link to some other people who've been writing about it. Um, but I think that there were some who definitely have commented on the Diana Barbara relationship has been queer baiting and that there was some hope that it would go that particular direction. Um, I didn't see that myself necessarily, but I'm also not the, the one who might necessarily. So I don't think that that means it wasn't there. And I think it's a very legitimate concern to be sure and I, I will definitely say I feel like um, it was just one more way in which the relationship with Diana and Barbara felt really just messy in terms of the way that it, it felt like there could have been so many more ways to go, whether it's them developing an actual relationship, which because as you said, it is canonical that Wonder Woman Diana has been has been romantically and sexually involved with other women. Um, it's canonical that that those things can happen. Uh, and so it felt a little weird to tease that. But even just to have them wind up as buddies, like I kept waiting for the moment when Barbara was going to recognize that Max Lord was just twirling mustaches nonstop as a ridiculous villain and come back to the archaeology and use this archaeology mind that she has and team up with Diana. And so for her to both be not ever become still in that kind of like 1940s -ish trope you said of the I mean, the literal cat fight uh Marston is a hero of mine in many ways and I think did some wonderful things with this medium. He was also a man in the 1940s trying to give his interpretation of feminist liberation with a very 1940s cis male perspective. Um, and, and so it doesn't really surprise me that he would write this villain to have like a cat fight literally with, with Diana. But it, it, it just seemed like all these many ways in which the movie could have decided to, to make these other choices, to have them linked romantically or to have them be... Um, you know, just buddies who who become allies, or just to have Barbara be the main big bad, but to have Barbara be the not only the stay bad, but the sidekick to Max Lord also just seemed like not the choice I would have wanted the movie to make. Yeah, I. So a few thoughts on that. Um, yeah, with the I, I haven't read the articles you're uh, referencing about uh, the potential queer baiting, and I. I'm excited to read them when you link them in the show notes. Um, I, uh, I, at, at this point, having not read them and also not being, um, queer, um, I, I don't really see it. Um, mm-hmm. I think that queer baiting, uh, is used very loosely now. Um, and, uh, often used to say like, this could have been queer or I wanted this to be queer and it, it wasn't textually, um, whereas like the term really means that the, the filmmakers or the showrunners or whatever specifically tease that on purpose to get you to watch and then didn't give it to you. Like they baited and which I don't think that's what happened here. Mm-hmm. All that said, like considering that both characters are canonically queer in the comics and Diana is in the movie universe as well. Like when they have their little dinner scene, I was like, Hmm interesting what's going on here and then of course they didn't do anything with it which I 
am pessimistic enough about Hollywood to not expect them to do anything with it. Yeah. Um, but, um, but yeah, I think they, they could have done much more with that friendship. Um, the fact that they like, they had one night that they, <laughs> now I'm doing it. They spent one night together. Um, <laughs> but they, they spent one evening interacting and then they like had a fight and then Diana just starts calling Barbara from around the globe, like Google this for me, except no, yeah. cause it's 1984. Um, it, it did, it, it wasn't sold on what was going on with the relationship there. Um, mm-hmm. I will say I didn't, I, I would have been surprised if um, Cheetah had been anything other than like, if she had been helpful or had seen the error of her ways, because she never does in the comics. Yeah. Um, so that, that didn't surprise me as much, um, but it would have been nice. Yeah, and I'll, I'll admit, I don't know the character anywhere near as well, so I didn't know what direction it could have gone. And I do think there's an extent to which, as I said, I, I, I like you, I didn't see the queer baiting necessarily, but I also think that's it's it's not my lane. And so I, the fact that I didn't yeah. see it, I think, doesn't mean it wasn't there by any means. And I think you're saying kind of something similar. Um, and that's, that's someone else's discussion, to be sure. I think if we had wound up in the movie that they told, where the whole thing is about her getting over her love of Steve... To have it be her developing attraction and love for Barbara be a part of that—that that would feel like a real betrayal of everything from season one, from season one, from the first movie. And so I'm glad they didn't go that way. But I think you could have told the her and Barbara story differently, and and, and it, it, you could have made it not as much about the thing with Steve, or you could have changed it in some way to include both of those. Because um, I think to, to put it into this movie would have would have not worked. I'm curious what your take on the other side of it of, okay, so if we have to have her still be probably stay a villain, not, she's not going to kind of team up and realize Max Lord is wrong. Did it feel weird to you that she wound up in the end being the, the sidekick to Max Lord and that he was the big bad? Yeah, not really. Um, and I think this is a case where your perspective as somebody who's relatively new to these characters is really valuable because, um, you know, we have to look at the movie as its own thing. Um, Mm -hmm. and I'm bringing in, my baggage as a comic book fan, but Cheetah, she is a main Wonder Woman villain. She's been around since the beginning and she's really important um, Mm. or the various versions of her are really important. Um, But she's, I've never thought of her as that heavy of a hitter because she's like a sexy cat lady, (laughs) to be honest. Like it's like the big fights are with somebody like Ares, who is a God who has that level of power. Um, And Cheetah is often, and this is, this is also sexism, but it's often just sort of like, I don't know, thrown into the injustice league and she's doing what Lex Luthor tells her, you know, she's, she's, she's henchwoman energy. She's not she, plant right. evil plotter. Energy. She has big henchwoman energy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and like, that's, that's sort of what I expect from her, which is not necessarily fair, but it is, it does tend to be what I expect. Um, right. And there's a nice dynamic of, that it doesn't have to be the man who's the muscle. That sometimes the woman is the kick-ass muscle behind someone else's plan. Like, I, I can see there being a positive way of looking at that. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I think the the plot as it shook out made sense to me with, like, the respective roles that those characters filled. But I think I would really go back to the drawing board with the whole plot to begin with. Uh-huh. Um, like, I don't, I don't necessarily think that, uh, it can be 
tweaked, I think, because of all the the issues it raises with like this doesn't make any sense for Diana's character and it doesn't make any sense in the overall DCEU. Um, but yeah, whereas Max is a, a complicated character, but has had that more uh, global crisis level of villainy right at the times that he has been a villain and I, I appreciate what you're saying about the perspective and this is kind of fun because here i get to be on the flip side of where i've been recently on my other podcast about the star wars universe in terms of the tv show mandalorian we've been having a similar dynamic because there are characters that have been introduced in the tv show the mandalorian and i think one of the reasons i think i love that show is because a lot of people who are not super hardcore star wars nerds like myself have been really loving it and I've, I, we have one person on our podcast there who hasn't seen these characters in every episode of the Clone Wars and the TV shows and things like that. And so it's been a fun dynamic to hear like, oh, yeah, what, what's your perspective on Ahsoka Tano or Bo-Katan if you haven't seen all this background stuff? So, so I'm glad it's kind of fun here that we get to reverse that. But yeah. you're right. Go ahead. Oh, just <laughs> one thing I will say that I really appreciated about this movie because for a very long time, DC movies did not have Easter eggs and they didn't have any references to uh, like other stuff in that universe. And they were like really aggressively, it, it almost seemed like they were going out of their way not to do that. Like I remember there's a moment in, I believe it's the dark night um, where there's a car chase and they go past a, a truck and it's a circus truck. And right. it's like, I don't remember what it was. I want to say it started with an H, but it's not Haley's circus, which is the circus that Dick Grayson was raised in. Um, yeah. And it's like, why even have a circus truck? It, it's literally like going, fuck you, comic book fans. You're losers and you don't get to have this little thing that would make you so happy. And like Marvel, meanwhile, when they kicked up their universe, like everything they did was like, hey, hey, fans, you're going to like this bit. Um, yeah. and if someone's getting some weird bit of Stark, it probably comes from Stark from Stark. Sorry. If someone's getting some weird bit of tech in a totally different movie, it probably comes from Stark Enterprises, like little things like that. But yeah, like why can't Clark Kent be sitting at his desk at the Daily Planet working on a Wayne Enterprises computer? Or like, I mean, if you don't want to take it out of the uh, the Superman uh, group of characters, then a LexCorp computer. Or you could go right. really obscure and make it like Cord Tech and then... It's not going to take anybody out of the movie, but it makes the fans happy. Yeah. So uh, the businessman towards the beginning who like comes in and is like, Max, you suck so bad. And then he's the first one who Max like exploits pretty much. Mm -hmm. um, he, Max calls him Simon. And I looked at my brother and I was like, do you think that's Simon Stagg? And he was like, oh my God. And then it was, <laughs> and we were so happy. And everybody else in the room was like, Okay. Yeah. I had no idea who that was, but it didn't take me out of it in any way. You're, that's a no. great example of the kind of Easter egg that, that doesn't say – because I think the problem with the Easter eggs is sometimes it can become an issue of accessibility. And I'll right. be honest, I love Star Wars. I'm worried that that will happen, that it becomes a little bit of, wait, you haven't played that video game from 1996? Well, you're yeah. not a real fan. You don't get to enjoy this. Yeah. And so I'm so glad that this movie did a better job of, of balancing that. Yeah, it's like he's – you can tell exactly what kind of character he is and you don't need to know anything more about him, but he's a perfect character from the comics to fill the role of like, 
rich guy who's a jerk and maybe kind of sleazy. And like, you don't need to know that his son-in-law is metamorpho. Right. <laughs> exactly. So let's talk about Max Lord. Um, I don't know Max Lord very well, but he was one of my favorite characters in some of the... He's appeared in Justice League, I believe. And I think he was a fairly regular um, kind of antagonist, but who might be useful sometimes, if I remember, in Supergirl. Yeah. Um, he. Yeah, I feel like he was in season one of Supergirl. That sounds right. Yeah, I know it was a while ago. So Max, um, in a lot of ways, is really perfect for this movie. He um, debuted in the 80s, and he debuted very much as um, the... Uh, archetype of the sleazy 80s tycoon like mm-hmm. you know the uh the, the Wolf of wall street type exactly like the blue shirt with the white collar um and just being really smarmy and always chomping on a cigar and always like trying to find a new angle um and he basically he shows up um this is the late 80s iteration of the Justice League, the Justice League International, which is one of my, the JLI is my all-time favorite team, and it's one of my all-time favorite comics. Um, and he basically shows up out of nowhere and is like, hey guys, I'm going to be like managing your team. And they're like, we're a superhero team, we don't need a manager. <laughs> and he's like, too bad I'm here. And they're like, Okay. <laughs> Um, and it's that that book is a comedy and it's like deliberately played for laughs. And so he's a sort of over the top parody, but what that book does so well is it, it introduces these broad character types and then it sort of unpacks them. It's like, Oh no, this is a complete human being. Um, and he is introduced very much as like, he's really amoral and sleazy. And we see like in his backstory, like he almost murdered this dude to get ahead and, at the last minute wound up not doing that because maybe he isn't all bad. Right. Um, and through his time working with these superheroes and his exposure to these more altruistic characters, he becomes a better person. Mm. Um, and then there's this big plot line where um, basically a lot of people find out they have superpowers. So uh, he suddenly discovers that he has mind control powers which the movie did not do at all. Um, but uh, when he uses them, he gets a nosebleed. And so whenever Max is like, oh, my head, I was like, he's going to get a nosebleed. Oh, it's yeah. nosebleed time. I was <laughs> waiting for it. Uh-huh. Um, and then he died and they put his brain in a robot body. <laughs> so he couldn't do that anymore. And you then, know, as you do. And then out of nowhere in 2004, like he had basically disappeared. He wasn't really in anything for like a decade. And then out of nowhere, they, um, they had to make a heel turn. Like he just went totally evil. Um, and he murders, uh, the Ted Cord blue beetle. Who's one of my favorite characters. Um, and who had been like a long time, very close friend of his, he murders him. And then he's, his whole plan is like, metahumans are bad and I have to get rid of them and give the planet back to the humans, even though he himself is a metahuman, mm-hmm. which is a continuity error because he actually was a cyborg at that point, but they forgot that. They made him a metahuman again. Um, and so he like, the, the climax of this story is he takes control of Superman um, and is 
going on a rampage using Superman to destroy things. And so Wonder Woman snaps his neck to stop him. Like she catches him in her lasso and she's like, how can I stop you? And he's like, the only way is to kill me. And she's like, all right. Oh, that's Max Lord. Oh yeah. I know that story. And we've talked about it in terms of the, uh, we did a whole episode on do superheroes kill. I had Mm -hmm. forgotten that it's Max Lord specifically who Wonder Woman has to kill. Yeah. It's Max Lord. Um, And it's interesting because like that moment has become very iconic, um, which I'm like, "Mm." All right. (laughs) I just, he's never gotten back to being good or even amoral since that moment. He's been a villain because he does come back um, a couple years after that. He's been a villain ever since, which is a disappointment to me because I really, I really love the character. Um, Although there's uh, the comics, the Wonder Woman comics uh, just completed a really fun arc. Um, by Mariko Tamaki, who's taking over on Batman. She'll be the first woman to write a main Batman comic, which is amazing. Nice. Long overdue, but amazing. Um, but she did this whole arc where, like, Diana has to team up with Max, who never died because this is a new continuity, but he was able to see into this other universe, this previous universe, where she killed him. So he's like, I'm going to get revenge. Right. like, but she didn't kill you. You're fine. <laughs> Um, but yeah, he's, so he's an interesting character. He's been used in a lot of different ways. Um, and one of the things they changed a lot about him, like he is old money in the comics. He's Maxwell Lord the third, which I mean, he changed his name, uh, in the movie. Um, he does not have a son in the comics, although they did just introduce a daughter, um, who's also a villain, but I did, I did like that he was redeemable at the end, that he saw the error of his ways and he made amends and undid things because I have been, like, I thought he was going to end the movie with his neck snapped. And Mm -hmm. instead he did the right thing. And I was like, oh, there's my Max. So again, it's one of those things where I can't really separate my investment in the character from like how it, played out in the movie so i was happy with how that went but i don't know if if you found it believable i i had a lot of questions about max lord (laughs) um and here again is a case a case where we have very different perspectives on it because i don't have the full canonical knowledge and i and i want to say i i appreciate your saying about the the value of the perspective and i think both perspectives are, are are equally valuable but i also like i admit i there's an ignorance that i have there that i'm really glad you can fill in those gaps and i think Honoring some of that existing canon is important, to be sure, if not being slavish to it. I definitely feel like I loved the Max Lord of Supergirl Season 1. And I, I just did a quick, like, kind of reminding myself of some of it. You know, and I was right in my memory that he he's presented at first as an enemy, but then he becomes kind of a, well, we're, we're both on the same side, even if we don't like each other. And that he has some technology that helps him be the only one, along with Superwoman, Supergirl, who... Uh, keeps him safe from the big mind control at the end of the season. And so they, they work together and and he had like, I like characters who are the, yes, I'm smarmy. Yes. I'm terrible. Yes. I'm underhanded and deceitful, but I'm not as bad as the real person. So you're going to have to work with me. Like that's a dynamic I love. I feel like um, they sort of used him as a, a Lex Luthor stand in, in that season. Like, cause that's yeah. a very Lex Luthor thing. Like I'll let you use my technology to stop these evil aliens, but I still hate you. Right, and don't you dare trust me for one moment, because I'll right. totally take. I mean, that yeah. it's very much like kind of the the Loki role that often Loki plays now. 
Um, and that's a fun character. And I think I just wanted some kind of a team up, you know, Barbara and Diana against Max or Max and Diana against Barbara, you know, like whatever it was. Yeah. Um, I think though, I just felt like I, I did like the redemption at the end. Um, I'm not always wild about, I don't care if 3 billion nameless people die, but if it's my son, then suddenly I care. Mm. Um, like it's nice to see the love for his son, but that felt weird given the numerous times that, you know, he just didn't want to be bothered by his son in the show. Like he was yeah. upset about it's this weekend for him to have custody. I, I just, I felt like he had the potential to be this amazing character, but in, in the first half, I mean, a again, coming from Mandalorian, Pascal is one of my favorite actors. I think he's a, the range he showed. This character is so different than what I've seen him play before that I, re- I he really sold me in the first half of the movie as this character, you know, who's kind of caught in the 1980s. Unless you're a huge success, you're a failure. And, you know, that dynamic that I think was very common of the best way to love my children is to never be present for them because I'm working for their success. And so, yeah, I think that that kind of a lesson of just loving your son and being part of his family is the much better way than trying to have this incredible success. But there's a point at which the desire for success and power he has shifts from being, I want the capitalist dream to almost Emperor Palpatine, you know, incredible power. Um, that's the, that's the word, the wrong line. What is it? Um, whatever ultimate, it is. Ultimate, uh, ultimate Yeah. Ultimate power. Mwahaha. Like, I just didn't believe once Max has half the world's oil and like, okay, nope, let's do step two of the plan. Let's go, you know, take over the presidency. That's what I kind of checked out a bit was like, I, this now feels like a cartoon two dimensional villain in a way that I wanted a lot more from. See, for me, I guess if there's one thing the past four years have taught me, Mm-hmm. It's that there is no end to the greed of some people and the need for power. Like I, I suppose I wish... that's unfortunately true. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. Like, and I feel like I, I mentioned this a bit in when we did the um, the hundred episode show. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish. Like, I'm not. I'm not a villain person. I'm not somebody who's particularly interested in villains. And right. Um, I think it's great when you have a villain who is really complex and, and uh, well thought out and you do like you have a character like Loki or um, Killmonger or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or Magneto. Like those are really rich and interesting villains. Um, but I don't actually have a problem with, Hey, um, I'm just here to get all the money and or power that I possibly can because I am, because that's mm-hmm. what I want. Like I'm like, that actually is believable to me because I can point to people in this world who, you know, maybe they have a rich inner life, but I don't see it. Like what, what is Mitch McConnell doing all the time? You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) yeah, no, that's fair. I mean, you got, yes, I I definitely hear you on that. Yeah. So like to me, I, I definitely see what you're saying, but for me that sort of went hand in hand with like the whole movie when I when I realized what the MacGuffin that the movie revolved around was, it felt very. Um, I was like, this is why I said it was kind of like a B movie. Um, it felt like a monster of the week movie somehow. It, it was a yeah. movie, but it felt like a monster of the week episode of like Buffy or even like the 
Sabrina the Teenage Witch, not the new prestige version, but the TGIF version (laughs) with Melissa Joan Hart. Like it felt like an episode of Charmed or Xena that was like, here's a wishing stone and or Smallville. Like how many episodes of small, like there's an episode in season one with Amy Adams where she's basically the cheetah character um, where like that kind of, um, poorly thought out motivation and um, again these sort of almost small stakes because the characters aren't growing and you're not making any new points and it all revolves around a plot device that you know from the very beginning because that's how it works that everything's going to be reset at the end Yeah, like you know the minute you see how that thing works that it's all going to get undone, so what's the point? And so once we were already, like, floating in that atmosphere of, like, oh, this is one of the not-so-good episodes of Buffy. (laughs) That's fair. The fact that Max was like, I'm going to take all the stuff, and here's the, like, like, they brought in this guy who, I don't know if they said, I couldn't quite hear if they actually identified who the president was. So I was like, is this... It certainly looked like Reagan. It was a very clear Reagan stand-in. I was like, is this a fictional president or is it a really (laughs) bad Reagan impression? Because they didn't even try. I was like, this is a major motion picture. You don't even get a guy who looks like Reagan. We have footage. You could do it. It It was that kind of thing. So I was like, I was sort of on board with the silliness of it, both because, sadly... I feel like it's believable that somebody who had access to that kind of power would take it and would not stop. Uh, the, that's, the, that's fair. Yeah, like the theme of the movie that like once you ha- there's no level that will satisfy you, you're going to keep taking. I bought that, um, but also the sort of heightened silliness of it. I guess I my like, phrase yeah. that you know he has all this money and power, why does he feel like he needs the presidency too that's not believable is... Frankly, actually, no. I have evidence of that exact situation. <laughs> yeah, I can I can uh, point you in a very specific direction for that one. But I feel like, you know, twenty. that's what I want in fiction. Like, 2020, one of the problems is that the victims are so boring, among other things, being so <laughs> horrible and terrible. Like, give me someone more interesting. But I think that helps. I like that idea of seeing it as just kind of like the supernatural or the, the Buffy, like, villain of the week. Like, it's a MacGuffin. We don't care about the details. Yeah. Which I, I just, don't I, think it should have been. I again, this is a major motion picture. Come on, like, <laughs> what's going to happen next? Diana's going to make a date for the same night with two different people and has to run back and forth between them. Like, <laughs> come on! But since that's where we were, I was like, yes, this is how this plot goes. They just have more money. I, I just had this wonderful like brain, uh, you know, going off at a total tangent, just knowing. The, the origins of, of Wonder Woman and all that, like, we, we do get some, you know, Wonder Woman has a date with Steve and with Barbara and hijinks and Sue, and it's ridiculous, but they all live at, happily ever after in a polyamorous triad. That um, would be perfect. Actually, I, I make fun, but that literally is a plot point in the fourth Superman movie with Christopher Reeve that uh, Clark and Superman have a double date with Lois and the <laughs> other female character in the movie whose name I can't remember. And it's actually delightful. <laughs> that sounds really fun. That sounds really fun. Uh, I think they did something like that with Supergirl as well at some point, but I don't remember mm-hmm. all those episodes. Um, and I think that also gets to 
one of the other things that, that really bothered me about the movie, and I, I know you want to talk more about how it fits into the larger DC issue and some plot holes there, and I'm not sure if this is the same one. I recently did an episode about canon. One thing we talked about with... We've talked a lot about how it can be toxic to be super focused on canon and that some of the worst fandom is the like, no, no, the belt buckle's wrong. You know, this... and it, mm. All that's such bullshit. The gatekeeping that happens, so terrible. And so often driven by toxic men, to be 100% clear. But one thing I do like that canon can do, and this is a very ethical thing, is explore the question of consequences, you know? Superman shows up in a world. How does that world change? How do things fundamentally change? And how is every movie now set in a world in which different things happen? Superman and Zod have this incredible fight that destroys all these buildings. How does that change things, you know? Um, And I feel like the DCEU has done some degree of that. Not as much as I'd like, but they've at least been trying to. And I know you and I share a lot of feelings about the Zack Snyder interpretation of Superman and that Man of Steel is not our favorite by any means. But one thing I think that that movie captures pretty well is that Superman appears to a world that has never known a superhero, that has never known supernatural events of any kind, and is fundamentally changed by his appearance. And that later movies in the the, the Snyderverse take that on. And as you said, I thought that the the MacGuffin at the end was going to be total reset. You know, someone's going to wish that the last week had never happened or in some way that all this was going to be erased. But instead, we have a world that now remembers this crazy week in 1984 (laughs) when everyone's wishes came true, when a wall appeared in the middle of a desert, which, by the way, really racist portrayal of the Arab uh, little plot line there. You know, that this woman spoke to everyone throughout the world and made them all decide not to have their wishes, which, as a friend of mine pointed out, like, some of the wishes are, like, super poor kids drinking water out of a ditch, wishing for, like clean drinking water and Mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. giving that so much weirdness but i i don't understand how a world could go through these events and then go back to normal in such a way that superman can then come along and it'd be oh my gosh we've never imagined something like this it was 20 30 years later um see i kept thinking about um this is ironic you're thinking about superman and i'm thinking about batman oh there you Um, go (laughs) but i was like I, I looked it up. I was like, how old is Ben Affleck? <laughs> because he's older than me. I was born in 1984. He would remember this. And if Bruce Wayne is the same age as Ben Affleck, he would have been 12. And I think we all know what a 12-year-old Bruce Wayne would have wished for. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, Bruce would remember, oh, that time my parents came back for five minutes and then I had to give them up, which yeah. I don't necessarily believe he would have done. Like, I... I I actually do really like the ending in some ways, which we can also talk about, but the whole time, like right from the mall scene, I was like, wait a minute, this is, this was on the news when Bruce is trying to find other people to join the justice league. All he can find about Diana is this one photo from world war one when she was on the news during his (laughs) lifetime. And the more the movie went on, yeah, I was like, does he not remember the time there was a giant wall all of a sudden in the desert? Like, does he not remember the time that 
the U.S. and Russia fired all of their nukes at once and then they disappeared in midair. And it, like, I, I grew up in the very tail end of the Cold War. I would remember that. Yeah. Um, and if he doesn't remember, like, there's historical record of it. Like, it just does not make any sense that the only evidence that he can find, and, like, obviously, like, this is the order that these movies were made in, and like you were saying, you can't be too beholden to canon, and you can't be too, um, like, if they're too rigidly um, closed in by what happened in later movies, then that's not helpful. But at the same time, they didn't have to set this movie in 1980. Yeah, Yeah, well, they, they didn't have to set this movie in 1984. They could have set it after Justice League. There was no reason not to. Um Paul Hoppy, who's my co-host for a lot of these episodes, um, he and I have talked a lot about this, especially in regard to the Star Wars movies, because I think this has been a huge problem. Um, it, prequelitis, that anytime mm. you're setting something in a time period before what has already happened, you always have this problem of, is it going to fit in the larger world? And mm-hmm. that especially becomes a problem anytime that some movie or some TV show or some book has said, this was the first time it happened. Because then if you actually want to say, well, but actually this also happened beforehand, you have to figure out some way to explain that. And if Wonder Woman had given this incredible speech and used the lasso of truth over television, which, beautiful, doesn't make any logical sense, but sure, (laughs) let's go with it. Um, And the result had been that, like, everyone together in the world, in the universe, wishes, in the world wishes that we go back seven days, you know, or something to erase all this from memory, it works. But they don't do that. And I just, it doesn't, I I didn't even thought of Batman, but you're right. Um, There's a tangent, but I think it's really, really related. In theology, which is one of my main interests, we often talk about this question of once you introduce the idea of a supernatural power who can kind of reach into our world and change things, you know, you then have to always ask the question of if they can do that, why don't they? Mm-hmm. And so if you say like everyone in our church prayed that Aunt Millie's cancer would be healed and then Aunt Millie's cancer was healed. Well, now you have to ask, and you, and you say that it's because of the prayer. Now you have to ask yourself, well, how come, how come every time this other group prays for someone and the cancer doesn't get better? And obviously, I mean, that's a, I'm, I am a person of faith. I do think there's, there's value in prayer that, There's a whole huge theological can of worms to be opened there. That's a very different discussion. But my only point is, I think the same thinking would apply to superheroes. Once Bruce Wayne knows that Wonder Woman can save some people's parents. Mm. You tell me that there's a Bruce Wayne who knows that a superhero could have saved his parents but didn't? That's an incredible supervillain right there. Like, that's a great origin story. Um, But it's not how you get Brute Batman the superhero. No, and I I mean, it goes back to what we were saying earlier about, like, this movie does not explain why that mall robbery was the reason that Diana acted. Like, why didn't she intervene in World War II being the person most obvious? But there were so many terrible things. Like, she is a global superhero. Yeah, like, it, it, it raises all these questions, but it just does not have doesn't seem to have interest or perhaps the mental capacity to address because this movie is not, it's not very thoughtful. Yeah. Um, and I think 
your point about consequences is really crucial because like, you know, I'm watching it and I'm like, well, this makes no sense. But in sort of an affectionate way, I'm like, this is very silly. And surely Bruce Wayne would have remembered this and other people would have remembered this. It's historical record. This is goofy. But the fact that, but I'm, I'm okay with that. You know what I mean? Like that, that doesn't bother me so much, but the fact that there, that it doesn't change how the world operates, I think really, um, comes back again to the, the part where Diana doesn't grow as a character where this movie, it feels small because it's treading water in every possible way. It also kind of diminishes her impact, you know? I mean, if, if Superman appears and now there are these cults that think Superman is a literal god, why doesn't when Wonder Diana Woman get is? That? Yeah, exactly. She is a literal god. Yeah. Which also to say, I want to hear more about what you liked about the ending because we've been bashing this movie a lot. There were definitely some <laughs> fun parts, to be sure. Um, although superhero ethics is supposed to be one of the, one of the more critical of the various podcasts <laughs> on this network, um, but we do like movies sometimes. I promise. Yeah, but, I, I had a fun time. It's yeah. just. <laughs> not so much the deep thinking but one little disappointment i had and i wanted to ask if this was something that is more explored in the comics i love the greek god origins of diana and i think that's such an interesting part of the story and frankly i mean especially when barbara is is her last name is minerva which is the the greek goddess mm-hmm. name for uh the roman name for the greek goddess diana uh, athena I was hoping that we would get, we were going to dive more into the world of Themyscira and Greek mythology, especially when they mentioned that, you know, trying to find out which Greek god created this particular wish stone is a plot point. And then we mentioned that that it was created by this particular god of deceit and lies. I'm going to get the pronunciation wrong, but it seems like it was created by a god named Decalafreya Ero, who's a god of mischief and treachery, who... My understanding is is completely made up from this movie, has no basis in either Greek mythology or comics. Is that, does that sound right? I, uh, having been a Greek mythology nerd since I was seven, um, but certainly not a, a formal scholar, um, I've never heard of this before in either the comics or Greek mythology. Um, uh-huh. it, it reminds me more of Loki than anything else. Yeah. And honestly, it feels very uh, not Greek to me because... The Greek god of of tricks and cunning is Hermes, who's a good guy. I mean, as good, they're not really good or bad, but like Hermes is a yeah, not a villainous god, and um, and this is definitely the, a, a sort of religious archetype. You see it, you know, Coyote and 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 as you said, Loki, Hermes. Like, there's all it pops up all the time, but yeah, this evil wish god is not what we would get. No, it's not. I mean, again, like Greek mythology, like it has tricksters like Odysseus is a trickster and he is he is praised for it. Like they they uh, rewarded cunning and maybe not deceit for its own ends, but like tricks and cleverness like those were uh, were valued in. Right. um, I don't know about the society, but you see their value reflected in the myths, whereas again, like not so much in Norse culture, which is why Loki is a negative figure overall and Hermes is a positive one overall. Although again, they're not, you know, it's not like uh, uh, more Abrahamic religions that are like, God is good. The right. End of story. Like I know um, other, ver- um, 
I'm by no means native, and so please take this with huge grains of salt. But again, like my understanding, like the coyote figure is often mm-hmm. it, it's the teacher. You know, it's the yeah, I'm going or a to, Nazi. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's I'm going to teach you by by showing you the idiocy of your ways or whatever it is. Right, um, and I don't think there's anything wrong necessarily with um, being like, here's this tricky god, and what like that's the, it's not even necessarily like the the way they the implication that I got was that this figure appears across cultures, so it's not yeah. necessarily specifically a Greek god, and also. You know, Wonder Woman um, as a franchise has always played extremely fast and loose with Greek mythology. <laughs> like, Ares is not a villain in yeah. Nor Greek mythology. Nor does he kill all the other gods. That's not no. And like, even the the idea that Diana is Zeus's daughter only dates back to 2016. Before that, she was made out of clay. Right. Um, and her mom was like, "Boy, I wish this clay baby was real." And the the Greek goddesses brought her to life, which I far prefer as an origin because i don't see why we need a man involved in that but Mm -hmm. that'd be nice yeah that was that was uh (laughs) not a retcon that i appreciated but i guess Um, to me it's it's one more interesting plot line that i was sad they didn't go for of i don't know somehow to have wonder woman defeat the god of war in movie one and then to defeat a businessman in movie (laughs) two like same why tell us that there's this god of trickery and mischief and you know maybe show us that that god is inhabiting maxwell lord and and so that god comes out for the last big bad fight um yeah or or cheetah because again like she was given her powers by a god why not have it be that god and do something with that connection but yeah no i agree with you like it was it's it's a MacGuffin, and it's a again. It's a sort of thing that Giles would find in a book in the library, <laughs> and they'd be like, "Okay, everybody has to renounce their wish," and then Willow would be really sad that she's not cool anymore, even though she's obviously very cool and everybody likes her. Right. Well, no, but she's a nerd. Which so Alison Hannigan isn't an incredibly beautiful woman. <laughs> right. Um, they didn't even give her glasses. <laughs> so true. Well. Somehow I think giving Henry Cavill glasses does not hurt his good lookingness. <laughs> yeah, he is just a hideous non-entity when he has those on. <laughs> Clark Kent, who, what? At some point, I want to have a, uh, I don't know if this would be a podcast or a discussion at some point, but I'm going to have a group of people who want to come on and talk about Henry Cavill as Superman, and then others who want to talk about Henry Cavill as the Witcher. Because I've met very few people who love <laughs> both portrayals. No. It's like, no, he's scruffy and gorgeous, or no, he's perfectly you know chiseled and gorgeous one of the two yeah i like him scrubbed up yeah that's fair that's fair the uh, true the true uh height has been a uh, man from uncle henry cavill i i still need to see that to me it's okay. it's uh the tutors where he's like just i, I love renaissance and he's just Ooh. so gorgeous in that but twink henry cavill yeah exactly <laughs> uh, anyway um moving us off of thirst cast which actually calls <laughs> pulls us hardcore into uh, listen to the discussions of the stand. She's very into the man playing the, the devil. But I, I will say about the end, and here's something I think ethically was very positive about the movie. I love when a character who normally saves the day by violence saves the day with their words and their mm-hmm. mind. And mm-hmm. so I did think it was really powerful that Diana can't physically stop Max Lord. I mean, sort of does with the lasso, but really it's her words and her persuasiveness that is able to save the day and to, you know, conquer evil. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, the lasso too, the lasso embodies truth. Right. And so even though there is a physical connection, it's, it's the, the forcing him to confront the truth um, mm-hmm. about himself and about what's happening. Um, and um, yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. I love that um, it was not about brawn. Um, and, you know, they did the, the one-two punch of, like, she defeats Cheetah, who's the muscle, with Brawn, yep. and she defeats uh, Max with uh, her, her eloquence and her honesty and her sort of emotional courage in that moment. Um, the actual logistics of it made absolutely no sense. I have <laughs> no idea how she was telepathically connected with everybody on the planet. <laughs> and like you said earlier, like the idea that like all wishes are created equal and everybody has to give them up when some of these were deeply selfish or destructive. Um, like the guy who just wished that his wife, the woman he was talking to, would drop dead and she wished for a continuation of the Irish genocide um, versus these children who wish for clean drinking water. Yeah, like, that didn't fit the, for me. No, those are not the same. Um, and if the movie had explored the idea of the gods or the dreamstone, this monkey's paw idea that it's like inherently... I mean, that's why the monkey's paw is a short story, right? Like it, does, it can't sustain two and a half hours. Um, but the, if you put that aside, I, I like that she won not by muscle. And I also, I like the inherent and somewhat implausible optimism of it. Like earlier I said, I don't necessarily believe that Bruce Wayne would have wished his parents away. Yeah. But, and I don't think that I... I would not want a Batman story to end this way, but Wonder Woman is so much about seeing and elevating the goodness in people mm-hmm. and believing so hard in everybody's best self that the fact that she can reach out and speak to everyone across all language barriers and, and that everybody around the world because of her words, sees the inherent beauty in the world as it is and relinquishes their selfish desire for the greater good. Like, yeah, that's cheesy as hell. And it's pretty implausible. Like I'm saying this in the same recording where I said, yes, I do believe that there are people who just want money and power and will never stop. But that's the thing that I want to believe in. And that's the thing that I think is very thematically correct for wonder woman and even if it's not even if if it's not necessarily plausible i still like to see it because i want that to be the world that we're going towards i mean and the first wonder woman movie i think caught that in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. you know especially there was so much of like addressing the fact that world war one had been going on for so many years and everybody was just kind of lost in this like cynicism and it's all darkness and terrible. And she has this hopefulness and she has this, let's go rescue that town. And, you know, she helps the soldier who's going through his own issues. And she, you know, it's my favorite scene in that movie. It's so good. Um, and you know, and this kind of goes back to, I think what we were both saying before about the journey that she needs to go on is that, for her role in Batman vs Superman to make any sense, at some point she has to lose that. 
so that she can then get it back in order to come back and, and be the, the important part of defeating Doomsday with Batman and Superman. Um, yeah. And we haven't seen that. And it just, there's a part of me that had, like, I, I, I was so glad you mentioned World War II because that's part of what I've kept focusing on is I feel like there's an amazing story to be told of the person who has this idea that humanity is so fundamentally good and right and true and that cause I just rewatched the first Wonder Woman movie and it's so strong that she keeps thinking like the minute Ares is dead, the war will stop. The minute Ares is dead, all of this will end. And then it absolutely breaks her heart when she sees that she kills Ares and they don't immediately stop. And she's grabbing Steve and saying, why, why I don't. And granted, it's because she, she, she killed the wrong person. She didn't actually kill Ares yet. She killed Ludendorff, but she so fundamentally believes that Ares is what's wrong. And that without the presence of Ares, humanity will be fundamentally good. 20 years later, we see, I think it's fair to say the, a certain pinnacle, maybe not the worst, but like one of the absolute pinnacles of human evil in World War II and the genocide and the Ukrainian uh, slaughters and the, the atomic bombs. Like I'm now going kind of kind of a long tangent. And I apologize, but I feel like there was there's I want to know what happens to Diana Prince's optimism when she sees that even without Ares, World War II is still possible. Yeah. And. I really wanted to see, like, it didn't have to be World War II. It could, like you said, it could be any of these things. But I wanted to see, like, what happens when that blow to her optimism happens, and, but she still fights back and she's still able to hold on to it. And we we got that her optimism is still there and it was beautiful, but just without all the rest of it. And it, yeah, yeah. It, it felt like so much was missing there. Well, I feel like there's sort of two directions that you can go to cover that gap between Wonder Woman and BVS. And one of them is, uh, is, well, she's sort of working from the shadows. Yeah. Um, which I think would be really fun and interesting. That gives you, it gives you an opportunity to do a lot of stuff, but I think that's more suited for almost a Peggy Carter style TV show, yeah. um, where you have these smaller missions that can be under the radar. Cause it's very hard to do a movie where nobody ever knows the thing that happened. Um, or you can go very dark. And I saw somebody, like I saw a headline, you know, between the movie coming out and actually seeing it that was like, Wonder Woman 1984 is very dark. And I was like, that's not what I got at all from watching this movie. Um, but I was expecting some kind of real sort of emotional nadir for her. I was yeah. expecting, um, because that's often where the second movies go. Um where they really they really bring the character very low and then they have to kind of I mean that's that's what the end of a second act is supposed to do and then they regain their um their drive in order to go into the third movie which they've already greenlit um yeah movie 2 the empire strikes back that that's exactly, what's supposed to happen <laughs> exactly um and that's not that's not really what this movie did um and yeah, it just continually begs the question of what about this moment made her decide to put the suit on? Yeah. And there's no, there's no, nothing that happens in this movie seems to take any greater context of anything into account. 
basically like it's fun to watch as a vehicle for itself and i yeah like you were saying like i think the optimism of the end of the movie is really beautiful but if she's ending this movie with proof with actual proof that humanity is fundamentally good then why does she retreat again until what 2016 uh with bbs and like because some guys were weird at her at a cocktail party. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't buy that. And part of it, I mean, a huge part of the problem there is that neither uh, Batman v Superman, I mean, she's only a cameo in that movie, um, but neither Batman v Superman nor Justice League spends any real time on her interiority or her journey because they're not interested in that. They're interested in her body and couture. Yeah. So there's... There's no, it's hard. I I can imagine that it would be hard for Patty Jenkins and screenwriters to figure out how to get Diana to a place that isn't really a place, that it's a big nothing. Yeah. But I think they could have made it more cohesive than this. Yeah. Yeah, I I think you're right. I I think, like, you talked before about the mall scene. I, I kind of took it that it was that she's been this kind of secret person who's been just not being seen, trying to stay out of the shadows, but every now and then she, like, you know, it, when she sees a little girl in danger, she she acts. Um, Can you imagine if that's just, like, she's just always done that? Yeah. <laughs> and people are, like, Barry or someone is, like, Bruce is, like, I found this photo, and Barry's, like, oh, yeah, that's Wonder Woman. Yeah, she's been doing that for 30 years. What are you talking about? Yeah, there's so many stories about her. She saved my mom once when she was a little girl. You don't know about this? <laughs> like, what? that could have been great. Or if you just take out the mall scene entirely, it could have been that we don't yeah. have to see it, but she could just, you know, have a moment or two where she says, yeah, like I used to believe, but then, you know, I saw just how terrible humanity can be even without influence. You just get like a picture of something from World War II or Korea or Vietnam or whatever it is. Um, not even yeah. a war. It can just be like the, you know, the, the, the treatment of native peoples, whatever it is. So that in this movie – we don't even have to see her emotional deer. We we but we just see her start to climb out of that and have that hope again. Um, Honestly, yeah, removing that scene would. I mean, it was fun. I liked it, but it would fix a lot of the issues with the movie. It was also very like whatever. It's a movie. It, it, this is a MacGuffin. I don't care. But like the fact that like she stopped this thing from being stolen, and then the FBI came to her and her other identity and was like, "What is it?" Like. There are other people in the world besides Diana Prince. But <laughs> yeah, that's the but sort of thing you know, that I mean, happens. That's, Matt Murdock yeah. is both the lawyer and then the guy who's got to save it. Like I, th- That's a trope that we've seen eight million times. Oh, yeah. Clark Kent on. is always writing about his himself. It's fine. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm fine with that part. Let, let's get to the one more big ethical question that I think is kind of a, a doozy. And then we can start to wrap up or hear any more that you talk about. So we want Steve Trevor to come back. He does so by inhabiting the body of a person who's already living a fairly full life. Mm-hmm. Diana recognizes this and is like, cool, you're in someone else's body. I'm going to have sex with the other person's body to have sex with you. Mm-hmm. Um, you have the floor. Yeah, it's gross. <laughs> it's gross. And it's not... It's not addressed in any way at all, but I was like, wait, th- uh, wait. It, it was also, I mean, it did take a minute of like, wait, what happened? Who's this guy? 
to even figure out what was going on. It was a very strange way to bring Steve back and honestly a completely unnecessary way. Like there it's magic. Why couldn't he just show up in his world war one pilot uniform? Like if a world, if, if missiles and a wall can be created out of thin air, why can't Steve Rogers body? Yeah. That, or Steve Trevor. So yeah. Oh God. Okay. So I'll <laughs> take Steve Rogers body too. Like fine, bring all the Steve, Chris Pine, Chris Evans, you know, we can have a whole big party. Who knows? Um, but yeah, like it, it was completely unnecessary to have that. Like if they needed to do an eighties men's fashion montage, they can go back to that mall. I'm sure they would let Diana try things on for free. That was a fun. I love that moment. You know, that's such a nice flip of her now being the one to introduce him to a naive world. Yeah. Like it's, that's the thing. Like, I don't think the filmmakers, I don't think anybody expected people to come away from the first movie loving Steve Trevor and Chris Pine quite as much as they did. Like, I don't yeah. think anybody thought it would be bad, but he was, he was so wonderful in that first movie. And that relationship was so well done and it was so compelling. And I think they just went crap. How do we get him back? And very often when that happens, it's not, done that well and yeah like there's which again is why we have this sort of thin b-movie plot for this movie because it's clearly constructed largely around how to get him back um but it also yeah raises this really hinky question that the movie never touches on which is like you can't you can't use somebody else's body for sex it's not okay yeah um and then and even that You can kind of maybe glide past a little bit uh, with the sort of well, he he wished she wished it away, so it maybe it didn't happen. But then the guy shows up at the end, and they're like staring at each other in the snow for like ten minutes, like giggling and. No, Diana, you can't date him. You were creepy with his body. It's not yeah. okay. Um, they like, really didn't let you not think about it. Exactly. And and, and I, you want to talk about toxic masculinity. I've seen a number of posts of, well, that guy must be gay because he didn't ask her for her number. Oh, God. Which is just one of the most head th- Like, it's possible that a guy can have a nice conversation with a woman and not immediately ask for her number or not immediately think that it's a flirtation or anyway, that's a whole other rant. But but even putting that aside, yeah, you're right. I think the sexuality of it is very uncomfortable, very inappropriate and never discussed. At least, though, Steve brings up the question of, listen, if I continue my life in this body then this other person's life just ceases to exist. We have killed this other person so that I can live. And the fact that Steve is the one who brings that up and she she hasn't thought of it, it seems like, until he mentions it, also just seemed like such a betrayal of her character. Because of all the things I could have met, I think there's a lot of heroes and, and anti-heroes who I can imagine saying, like, if you know, if you ask Bruce Wayne, can I put your father and mother back into the world in the bodies of people whose lives will have to come to an end? I think in a lot of versions, Bruce Wayne at least seriously considers that idea for a long time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't, in, 
I don't think there's any other version of Wonder Woman that I've ever seen who would ever consider that for a moment. Yeah, absolutely agree. Yeah. So. Oh. And again, Steve would have been dead by now anyway. Yeah, right. Or very old. Like, not to make light of that, but like he, like when he says, "I had a good life," he did. Yeah. It, it, it's it, it was tragically cut short, but it was his decision, and yeah. I'm, uh... I mean, like I've talked about how uh, the Linda Carter Wonder Woman was like eight-year-old me really enjoying, but. The Wonder Woman who I've really come to know and love is what I've seen from the the Justice League com- cartoons and that whole kind of the Batman the Animated Series and that whole like um, extended universe that they had mm-hmm. in cartoons for a long time. And in that, Steve Trevor is still a part of the world and a part of Diana's life, but he's like in his 60s or 70s now. And she flirts a lot with other people, especially with – I mean I'm, I'm a hardcore Bruce Diana shipper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I love that particular dynamic, but whoever it is – in that world, he's not her primary love interest. And so I guess it just it just really struck me that these movies felt like they had to go back to that. And, and I think it, just, it was just a really unfortunate choice. I think as we just, we've talked about, it really diminished all that her character can be. Yeah, I think I, I agree with you that the DCAU did a, their treatment of um, the Steve and Diana relationship is really beautiful. Um, it's like the whole they, she, they time travel back to World War Two, which is when she meets him. And it's it's lovely. Um but yeah, I mean, that's that's sort of what I was getting at towards the beginning when we were talking about Diana. Again, she's immortal. She's a goddess or a demigoddess. She uh, speaks every language on the planet. She's traveled everywhere. Like, it's not that I don't think that Steve should be important to her. Yeah. It's that I don't think that any one person should be the only person. I also don't think that Etta should be the only friend she has, ever has. Yeah. Like, she... Like, she's not designed that way. In the the comic history podcast we've done, I love the stories you've told about how she's friends with this whole sorority of girls that Ed is a part of who (laughs) go off and beat up Venetians and Martians and things like that. I love them. (laughs) Um, But yeah, like, I, I, you know, and and maybe I'm a little bit of a hypocrite here because I, I am very much like, I don't care how long Superman lives, he will always love Lois only mm-hmm. um whereas i'm like no diana like get it yeah. <laughs> you're immortal <laughs> date everyone i mean and that um, could be i feel like especially from the woman's perspective we've seen that story a million times you know i mean yeah. tolkien wrote this beautiful story about a immortal elf woman loving a mortal human man and that story has been done now a number of times mm-hmm. and it's a gorgeous story but maybe give us something else yeah, and it can add richness to her history without defining her. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, all right, well, I think we've covered uh, most of the ethical stuff we wanted to talk about for this movie. Is there any other kind of last stuff you wanted to bring up? Um, well, we did touch on this, but uh, the, the, the and other people have written about it much more thoroughly and um, eloquently than um, I can speak to this is again, not either of our lanes, but um, the uh, anti-Arab and Mm anti-Muslim stuff in this movie was... um, um, A choice. It was pervasive. It was just throughout, like, the, the reduction of every Middle Eastern character 
to a stereotype um, and the sort of white saviorness of, um, I mean, Gal Gadot is sort of conditionally white. It's a complicated issue. Mm -hmm. Um, And I do, like, I have been seeing the same anti-Semitism cropping up that I saw three years ago when the first movie came out um, around her. Uh, But I do think that there are, like, this movie really just... Yeah, it it leans did in, not handle that well. It leans into an anti-Arab and anti-Islamic, which, which again, I mean, it felt like they they decided that if we're going to do a movie about the '80s, we should have all the misogyny and racism and yes. homophobia of a movie about the '80s. Um, yeah, because I think you're completely right. The the uh, portrayal of Arabs and Muslims and this is terrible. And while this is subtler, to have the only I, he's never explicitly named, but Pedro Pascal is clearly a Latino person. <clears throat> and mm-hmm. uh, the, it's a Latino portrayal of Maxwell Lord, which I think is great. Let's have more of that kind of thing. I'm really in favor of that. And Pascal is a fantastic actor. But especially in the 1980s, to have a story of a Latino man who is trying as hard as he can to have the wealth that white people around him have mm-hmm. and is mm-hmm. willing to cut all of these ethical corners to get to take the jobs and do the, I mean, are you seeing where we're going with this? There's a trope there and it's not a good one. Yeah. The idea that striving is inherently villainous when it is done by people who do not, who are not born into that privilege. Yeah. Cause again, it's, it's similar to what you were saying about Barbara when she beats up the guy who tried to rape her. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, and this is, this is when we were talking about villains, um, often why I like a villain who is just sort of a one note, like greed monger who just wants stuff because I think too often villains are people who have been dealt a really crappy hand by society and they go evil about it. And then a paragon of white male privilege, like Batman or Superman shows up and is like, aren't you ashamed of yourself? Yeah. Like that, that's not always like sometimes you do get these really rich and interesting characters out of that, like Magneto or Killmonger, but often you get thoughtless, yeah, problematic yeah. issues. And yeah, Max absolutely had that going on, and I like I, didn't love it. I'll just say one 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 movie I think that really captured that did that right to me is Black Panther, because such a yes. big part of Black Panther yes. is about T'Challa having to realize the incredible privilege he had that Killmonger did not, and that that's a big mm-hmm. part of, you know, why they took these different paths. Um, well, and it makes it, it makes it a conversation right. that everybody in the movie is having and that, and they're all black and they're <laughs> all bringing a different perspective to this, uh, which is different than having two Latino characters, one of whom is like a seven year old <laughs> and <laughs> reducing it to like, I mean, and that's the other thing that I was thinking about this movie, like Max and his son are the only Latino characters and Diana and Barbara are the only women. Yeah. There's the Amazon scene at the beginning, but, and that like Max has that one secretary that, that that's it. And like their boss is a woman at the Smithsonian. But again, like for a movie that's about Wonder Woman and it's about women 
Yeah. I mean, you compare this to Birds of Prey, which you and I did a great episode on a while ago, which is so much more about a world of women interacting with each other and dealing with each other and fighting with each other and allying with each other. Um, yeah. And this is... Well... Go ahead. It's, it, it's the idea of, you know, you have to you have to examine your assumptions about the default. Um, and if you're going to throw a character into a scene and whatever that character may be, you know, something as small as I don't know I'm trying to think of a good example from this movie but like a co-worker at the Smithsonian or you know a person they run into at the mall or a person they run into at the White House or whatever um thinking about like are we just going to cast a man here are we just going to cast a white man here are we going to think about like why we would do that and can we make this world that we're depicting visually look more like the world that we live in. And it does take overcoming of like our immediate assumptions because of what, you know, the media has fed us. We're like, I think they've done studies and like when they have crowd scenes, it's like 12% women. So of course our brains are broken because we're not processing the truth. Um, So you do have to think about that. And then that, extends to thinking through are we recycling hackneyed tropes from 1984 or are we actually engaging with what we're saying about middle eastern people and latino people and in women who have insecurities about their appearance yeah yeah because you're right it's it's i think in all of those cases there's such a sense of you know you don't belong you're not supposed to be the one here and it, yeah, it just seemed like it just so missed the mark in so many ways. Yeah. Well, good. Well, um, I'm so glad you can come on and, and have this discussion with us. I think, um, you know, between this and Birds of Prey, we sort of hit the uh, very different directions of our feelings mm-hmm. on different DCEU movies. Um, I know Wonder Woman 3 has already been greenlit. Yeah. What do you want to see from that? What What do you want to – what can help redeem this or help – what is the parts of Diana's story that we haven't gotten that you hope that movie explores? Um, I mean, I would like that to take place in the now. Yes. I don't want it to be another flashback because it's just going to create more problems. Um, I I would like to see uh, more community for her, especially community of women, as I was mm-hmm. just saying. Like, I don't want her to have one female friend like she did in the past two movies. Have we um, ever seen Wonder Woman and Lois Lane interact in the DCEU? I don't think so. I think she had uh, like some word of condolence at, at um, Clark's funeral for Lois, but that's about it. Did she? I feel like all Lois did in Justice League was cry, which was infuriating. Oh, I did like that Lois and Martha got to talk. So, yeah, yeah I mean... Diana on a road trip with Lois and Martha and like Mara. <laughs> I'd be all for that. Would would watch, absolutely. Um, but yeah, I want to see her have more of a community um of you know, all sorts of people, but especially women. I would like to see her I mean, this is pie in the sky. I understand how Hollywood works, but I would like to see uh the fact that she is not straight be not just a wink, wink, nudge, nudge line, but like actually have her have a relationship with a woman that is yeah. textual, a woman who has a name, or at least even if they can't go, like that would be the ideal, mm-hmm. but at least be like, oh yeah, my 
girlfriend from Themyscira named so-and-so or this woman I dated in the 70s or whatever. Um, right. She had a picture on her wall of her holding hands with a woman who she was clearly close with in the 90s, you know, whatever it is. Like, just that moment in the Birds of Prey credits where it was like, Harley has a female ex was such... Oh, he was so good. I mean, that was... And all it was, it was showing good. was it all was... these terrible exes she'd had, but that one of them was a woman. Like, it was so good. That's feminism. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, even then, it's a breadcrumb. Like, d- more of that, please, but better. Um, not better, but, like, fuller, I guess. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, again, like I, I'm not like a super hardcore Wonder Woman person, so I don't necessarily have like, oh, I want it to be this villain. I want to see these characters. Um, speaking as a fan of Teen Titans, I would love to see um, either or both of the Wonder Girls um, who are like, one is, I guess they're both kind of her younger sister. It's complicated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but there are two different characters who have been Wonder Girl over the years. Um, and even if it's just like a nod or an Easter egg, I'd love to see them. Um, just something that really builds out her world and makes her less of a solo paragon and more someone embedded in a community. Um, but to, to retain that optimism and that faith that, was my probably my favorite part of this movie as well as my favorite part of the first movie. I think that's a great way to put it. And like the more I thought at, at first I was disappointed that in the first Wonder Woman movie, she's really with, with small parts from Etta Candy, the only woman. And the more I thought of it, the more I thought like, no, maybe this movie did need to be this first iteration about her in the world of men, quite literally. But it's 70 years later now. You know, it's now yeah. the 80s, not the 1910s. Like, let's give her more of a well-rounded world. And mm-hmm. maybe the first woman who she really has a connection with, she doesn't have a literal cat fight with because the woman thinks she works better <laughs> in high heels than she does. Like, come on. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think I definitely want it to be set in the in the modern day. I want it to be, you know, more that interiority. Because you're right, at this point she has all this backstory on her own but when she's hanging out with superman and batman she's mostly there to say funny quips and to look amazing as she helps fight things and i just think we deserve so much more about wonder Woman. like we have so much of the interiority of uh batman and superman let's get that with wonder woman in this world with them you know let's have bruce or or superman be the side character in her movie something like that I, yeah, like they, they buttress her plot instead of the other way around. Mm-hmm. You know what I? You know what I want? There is, um, there is a cover from uh, Justice League cover. I think it might be Wonder Woman. It's the early two thousands. I don't remember. This is this is a great description. I'm like it could be from one of several decades and several titles, but it's a very iconic cover, um, and it's just a close up of Diana's foot stepping on Batman's head like his head is to the side and she's just got her heel planted on his temple and all you see is her foot in his head that's what I want there you go there you go I was gonna say like you know look I I'm more of a uh, Diana Bruce shipper but hey there's some people who'd put that as part of the ship so you know 
I'm, I was going to say, whether they are doing it because uh, she he pissed her off or because they have consensually agreed that this is what they would like to do, that is up to Patty Jenkins. You know, and the, but... the whole, um, we're going to fight, we're going to fight, we're going to fight, we're going to fuck is certainly a very well-established trope in superhero movies. Watch Ca- uh, Daredevil and Elektra, for example, just one example. So, yeah, who the heck knows what's going I'd be fine go. with that. Um, <laughs> so, anyway... Uh, Jessica, it's always so great to have you on these episodes. I will say, at this point, I've been working harder and harder to try and get the superhero ethics episodes a little bit shorter. Um, you, once again, <laughs> I think at this point, probably the six or seven longest episodes, six or seven of the ten longest episodes are probably with you, which is great. Because oh, no. you have so much to talk about. And I always have these four or five questions I want to explore. And then you bring up three things. I was like, oh. No, we need to spend another 10 minutes on that because I never even thought of that. So thank you so much. I love your perspectives. Uh, If people want to know more about what you're doing and what you're up to, uh, where can they find more about you? Um, I am on Twitter at Jess underscore Plumber. um, And I also do a lot of writing, mostly about comics at bookriot.com. I actually um, have a piece that should be running fairly soon about the history of Wonder Woman costumes. Um and uh sort of how they fit into you know sartorial history in the real world and and the changes to her character over the past 80 years and actually next year uh she will be turning 80 years old so i'm gonna probably be putting out a lot more content about her uh to celebrate that so yeah keep your eyes peeled definitely worth it i've really enjoyed a lot of your writing and highly recommend it but here again you've just opened a can of worms that i need to ask about um Am I right that her costume in this is very different than what she wore in the first movie? My sense is that it was, in that one, it was much more Greek goddess. And in this one, it's the red and blue. It's American. She's not using the shield, obviously. Um, can you talk a little bit about that That, that change? And then obviously she goes into the, the gold bird woman outfit, which mm-hmm. will, that's a whole other discussion. But just <laughs> the, am I right that the main, did I just misremember it or did her main outfit shift somewhat? No, they're the same. Okay. I'm totally just <laughs> What it is, no, it's the saturation. Um, it's, it's the actual pieces are the same. Um, but if you watch this, I put this in the article, but if you watch from um, BVS where we first saw it to the Wonder Woman 2017 to this movie, the actual design of the costume is the same, but it goes from looking completely brown in that first movie um, to sort of desaturated um red and blue and gold um oh, in, okay that would do it yeah it is it is the multicolors, but they're very desaturated and actually it's the same costume for those first three like bvs i mean i'm sure they built new ones but it's essentially the same costume for bvs um justice league and wonder woman it's just that snyder turned the saturation way down and wonder woman has it sort of medium because it the whole movie is kind of sepia toned mm-hmm. and then this is 1984, so they cranked up that contrast, and yep. I do think it is it is new fabric. Like the colors are brighter; it's not just post production, but it is fundamentally the same costume. It's just that the colors are much more high contrast. Interesting. And then the armor originated in uh, an alternate future miniseries called Kingdom Come but it didn't have like pants or sleeves and had like a weird American flag draped on it for some reason. Um, And then eventually it was like brought into the main continuity as well. And uh, fans refer to it as the golden chicken 
I'm not sure if that's a compliment or not. Yeah, it, yeah, I like the idea. But there again, like, then give us the history of that character. Maybe we'll get that in the third movie. And it's funny. Yeah. yeah I, although, I, did you see the did you see the um, mid credits yes, singer that, about that? That okay, Linda good. Carter's going to play her, which I thought was looks fantastic. No, no, she did. Did you not watch the credits? Yeah, no, I saw Linda Carter showed up as her. Okay, like good. No, I meant that that clearly we're going to get that character in the third movie with Linda Carter, I'm guessing, playing a I much hope bigger so. role. That would be awesome. And you're right. Like, I, I'm just Googling now the pictures of her in that first movie, and it looks entirely brown, but I guess, yeah, if I look really closely, I see that it is reddish and bluish, but you'd never yeah. get that. So, And the shield, I guess, just is just in the 1980s, you don't use shields as often? I guess she just... Stop carrying it. it. It's a it is a little more um, conspicuous, perhaps. So she gave it to the Smithsonian. That's how she got the job. Yeah, exactly. There you go. All right. Anyway, thank you so much. Uh, just a quick note on my end. I'm doing a couple of different podcasts. This one, the Star Wars Universe podcast. I'm a frequent guest on or co-host on Pandavision. We're talking about the Stand. And in order to kind of try to make things a little bit simpler, I've decided that starting in the Beginning of 2021, I'm combining all my different social media for all these different podcasts into one, The Ethical Panda. So uh, you, there will still be different podcasts if you're just interested in superhero ethics or just interested in what I do with Star Wars or whatever it is. You can still keep listening to those. But there will now be a single feed called The Ethical Panda uh, as a podcast feed where I put out all the different episodes. And you can also just follow me at, at The Ethical Panda uh, ethical panda at gmail on facebook on twitter all those will be in the show notes and that's going to be the easiest way to reach me if you have questions ideas comments on any of these podcasts uh definitely uh do that we'll be shifting to that and with this episode would love to know what you all think um did you love this movie a lot more than jessica and i did tell us why were there parts of it that bothered you that we talked about that you agree with or disagree with or totally different things that we missed um, especially if you're someone who has different perspectives than us on the queer baiting issue or some of the racism issues. Um, I think Jessica and I have both been pretty clear that we are aware of those things and we see those things, but we also know what the limits of our own personal lanes are. So we'd love to hear from you about those. Please contact us any of those ways. And um, Jessica, thank you again. On behalf of everyone involved, thank you all so much. Have a great day. <laughs>